0: This podcast was proudly brought to you by Bioceuticals, leaders in nutraceuticals and education for healthcare professionals. Fx Medicine, I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining me on the line today all the way from sunny, wintry Melbourne is Alessandra Edwards who's a clinical naturopath, western herbalist and nutrigenomic specialist with a specific interest in digestive health, mental health and their interaction with the microbiome. Born and raised in Italy from a French family and having fallen in love with Britain, you get the immediate sense that Alessandra Edwards is not one given to the status quo. She's a searcher and researcher of natural options for complex disorders. She's worked with the natural health industry for over 10 years, both in the UK and Australia, where she runs Reclaim Your Health, a busy nutrigenomic and nutritional clinic in Melbourne Bayside. Alessandra utilizes an integrative approach to practice, combining specialised blood testing, genetic profiling, and gut microbiome sequencing to formulate personalised health plans. She works with a number of highly regarded integrative medical doctors and speaks regularly on nutrigenomics, gastrointestinal and mental health. Today, we're discussing how to treat kids with GI conditions. No small subject. Welcome back, Alessandra, how are you?
1: I'm
2: great, thank you. I'm wearing my songs and a jumper.
0: <laughs> I can't get over <laughs> Melbourne. We're having a heat wave in Sydney. It was supposed to be the eastern states and you've gone from what temperature down to, did you say 17?
2: It was it was sixteen this morning and it was thirty
0: three last night. Oh my goodness. <laughs>
2: wow. That's Melbourne.
0: Yeah, that is. But I've gotta say, a fantastic place on earth. I love Melbourne. Oh, it's wonderful. Now, onto our subject, and as I said before, this is no little kitten. This subject, this is kids don't have the faculties to describe what's going on, even in their tummies, let alone anywhere else. So, I've got to ask the beginning question, and that is, how do you start with a consultation with kids with gut issues?
2: <laughs> um, okay, I cheat. <laughs> I usually speak. To, I, I speak to the parents.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: um, it, it really depends on the age of the child. Yeah. So, if we are talking about uh, toddler age, so you know anything below the age of, of two, uh, then generally the parents have been alerted to the fact that something's not quite right. And typically, uh, the child seems a little bit off colour. Perhaps they um, seem like a little bit um, fussy in their eating habits, or they've lost their appetite, or. Or typically in that age group, the parents have noticed that there's something not quite right with the bowel movement. So either they're a little bit constipated or they've noticed there's some loose tools or a offensive smell or something like that. Yeah. Uh the the other side of it is that um often uh I see children who have chronic digestive issues and so in that case often is actually the um integrated GP who's contacted me ahead of time and so we've had a uh, telephone conversation so i i already know um what you know what i'm looking for uh and thirdly i tend to always speak to potential clients before agreeing to work with them so in the case of children i always always have a uh, a conversation before even the initial consult mm. on the phone and i do this because i'm acutely aware of um the, the things that can be missed in terms of children's health. And so I do this as part of my onboarding triage process where I can quickly work out um, red flags yes. so that I can refer them to G- the GP and say, look, I really think that you should you know, uh, discuss this with the GP because you need to do this kind of testing and then come back to me once the GP is giving you the all clear.
1: Right. And
2: I think that in this kind of current climate, particularly this year, uh, it's really important that um, we uphold, you know, really high professional standards when it comes to pediatric health.
0: I could not agree with you more. And I, it was actually one of my questions I had to ask you as a registered nurse because, you know, we've seen the issue with Marilyn Bodnar, you know, um, who, you know, I can't agree with that sort of treatment in, with anybody, let alone a child. Um,
1: yeah.
0: And I, uh, what annoys me, though, is the way that the media picked up on that she was a quote-unquote naturopath well, yeah. she's never done any formal study on that as far as I can determine. But she was apparently a midwife. Nothing about that in the media. Mm. And by the way, she doesn't appear on APRA. So she's certainly yeah. not a currently registered registered nurse midwife. Um, so I don't know what they mean by the term midwife. But it was, to me, the I was quite annoyed at the way that they, um, you know, targeted naturopaths, properly trained naturopaths who are trained in safety. Um and blamed this for, blamed her actions for an industry which actually has a better standing than what she was doing.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, I think that um, it was a bit of a shock to many people in the industry how the whole thing was uh, portrayed. And uh, I think, you know, from my point of view, I think what we need to do is really, uh, you know, raise our profile as complementary professionals and and to do that we really need to uphold the highest standard of practice you know in in our own professional life and so i think even more so now even more than ever we need to question everything that we do in clinic everything we say and um particularly now in victoria you know with the new um victorian health complaints and general code of conduct and there's been a lot of um Uh, people not happy about this in the industry. But actually, I think it's important that we have these codes of conduct
1: um, because
2: we're not registered as a profession. And so, you know, having these codes of conduct really makes you think in terms of, well, you know, I could be open to uh, litigation and I really need to think carefully about what I do and the kind of treatment and first do no harm and remember that, you know, we're not general practitioners. But we are complementary practitioners, so oh. I think that it redefines. It helps redefine the scope of practice even more, and uh, I'm all for it. I think it's a great thing.
0: Yeah, and and I think it, it's a good line, a demarcation line for our industry. We are not doctors. If you want to be a little doctor, go and do medicine, and take yeah. on that responsibility. Yeah. It, but can I ask first about these red flags? These kids are renowned for going off the boil quick quickly. You, they can't often. Tell you or demonstrate to you where the pain is, or what's actually happening in their body, and indeed you can't see that even on the best examination. So, what sort of things might you suspect with certain symptoms? Things like, you know, intersusception like a mm. let's say a Crohn's. What yes. are, even rheumatoid arthritis can present with gut symptoms. So, how, how do you look at red flags? What do you sort of look for?
1: Uh, okay, the, the
2: the the main things that I really look for are first of all, diarrhea, um, how long it's been going on, how severe it is, and uh, has this been flagged with the local GP? Um, is there a possibility that it's you know uh, a food poisoning case or or an infection kind of case? Um, I ask questions related to appearance of the bowel movement. Is the blood in the stool? Is the mucus in the stool? Um, other things that I look for are... Uh, Weight loss, failure to gain weight, you know, sudden fevers. And with things like interception, generally, um, I, I mean, I've never had a case like that. I think it's relatively uncommon. Um, but to look for would be severe pain. So anything where, uh, um, so even though a young child might not be able to point where it is, they would be aware of severe yeah. pain. Yeah, impossible, and, yeah. And, um, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, So those would be the main things. And the other thing also uh, that might ring alarm bells, even though the child might not present with some of these uh, particular symptoms, will be actually taking a really detailed family history. So if there are things like rheumatoid arthritis or uh, Crohn's disease in in the family, then my alarm alarm bells already are a little bit on the... that they're a little bit, um, you know, what's the word, activated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, right.
1: yeah.
0: Mm. You mentioned, I think, vomiting. You know, there's, there's certain criteria that we've got to look for with regards to how often a child vomits within a certain time period, particularly in an infant, um, so that you can get appropriate intervention before they go off the boil in a really bad way with regards to electrolytes. So what sort of things do you look for there? What sort of... Um, signs do you tell the patients to look for with you know skin turbidity and all that sort of thing
2: yeah um well look again it depends on the age of the child I'm super cautious with vomiting with infants. Uh, so, if it's something that has been going on for more than than a few hours, and um, you know the, the baby is appearing to have sort of um, you know sunken eyes, sunken fontanel, uh, starting to look lethargic, I, I straight away I refer that so you really need to go to ER now and get the problem assessment because I think that it's not. Um, it's just not safe, and I'm not in a position to give di- that diagnosis whereby I can reassure the parent that this is going to be okay in a child that young.
0: mm that's right, so given that you're not you know emergently concerned about this child, what examines, examinations apart from a detailed family history, what examinations do you undertake
2: okay um first of all, I would say in terms of the um the family history um one thing I would like to flag up is that uh, it's really important to go through a detailed medical history of the mother, and particularly also of the preconception area, uh, preconception time. Sorry, and how um, how healthy she was in pregnancy. Were there any medical interventions in pregnancy as well? Um, what type of birth? um the baby had, whether they were breastfed, whether other medical uh, or drug interventions in the uh immediate post period or certainly in the first three to six months. Uh I also look particularly for things like um utilization of uh protein pump inhibitors uh, uh in babies which is really really common practice now so yeah. uh I would say probably you know four out of five babies I would see uh, who've had, uh, you know, seemingly digestive issues have been given a diagnosis of reflux and been put on a PPI. And um, I think that it's it's a bit dangerous doing that. And it's a real shame because often more obvious things are actually missed. So I'm finding that um, very commonly breastfeeding issues haven't even been investigated. Uh, wow. And so... Yeah, and I actually I've seen this a lot and uh, it's happened, you know, quite often that by then getting the person to, um, you know, the parent to go and see a a proper lactation consultant and paying for it privately, that they discover that actually there are latching issues. And so uh, the child is is developing really, you know, uh, severe gas just because of the ratio of sugars that is coming through the milk. Yeah. And so... It's not really reflux at all. It's it's just it's a breastfeeding issue. Wow. Uh, and then we know obviously that intervention earlier on with PPIs sort of sets the stage for um, you know the follow up with dysbiosis and some young children also with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Mm. So I would say let's you know keep your radar on for those kinds of things and don't assume that just because a, a pediatric gastroenterologist recommended the PPI that that was necessarily the the correct diagnosis. It's okay to revisit that and um, discuss it with the with the general practitioner and and try these other measures that uh, um, would be helpful. Obviously, wouldn't recommend um, for the client to stop the medication. We can't do that, but at the same time, exploring the other avenues that could be could be actually more more helpful.
0: Yeah, um, just just a little bit of good news, I guess, on that front, and that is that. Um, uh, Medical Observer. This is December two thousand fourteenth of December two thousand and sixteen. Um, a hike in the use of proton pump inhibitors amongst older Australians over the past mm. couple of decades is now tapering off. So hopefully this oh, will translate. Great. Yeah, hopefully this will translate to the younger generations. Of course, um, as That'd be we, wonderful. yeah, wouldn't it? Um, yeah,
2: that would be really, really great. I
0: think it's really interesting that in my day, and and we didn't have the proton pump inhibitors, but we had the H2 inhibitors, Zantac and things like yeah. that. Um, yeah. In the MIMS of the days, they were never supposed to be used for longer than six to eight weeks.
1: Oh, wow. Well.
0: Find that. <laughs> Find that these <laughs> days. <laughs>
2: No, that's right. Okay. Usually for months.
0: Mm. So, what are the what would be the top five most common things that you actually see presenting in kit?
2: Okay, so in terms of our uh, symptoms, uh, usually constipation and diarrhoea, or a combination of of both, will mm. probably be my top two. Abdominal pain, as self reported, and then uh, things like incopresis, Also, I see quite a bit of that. Um, I'm not sure how many of that, that's probably five. I also see quite a bit of um reoccurring worm infections. So right. the ones that don't clear very easily. Um but there's a number of things. And then obviously on the rise, right, really food intolerances. And um if I could get on my soapbox for for another <laughs> few seconds again, um I would just like to 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 mention this growing concern of mine, which is um um salicylate intolerances. Uh I'm now basically every week I'm seeing a new person who's diagnosed that child with salicylate and amine intolerance. Yeah. And um they're convinced that the child has, you know, these severe intolerances. So then they go on to this highly restrictive restrictive um self safe diet and um they feel that the digestive symptoms Abate, and then the child also starts sleeping better. Uh, and so I see children who've been on on these diets where they're eating basically about ten different foods um, for for about between three and six months, mm. and it's it's a real concern for me because uh, that is really that's where severe nutritional deficiencies occur, yeah. and and in children they can occur really really quickly. Yes, uh, So I, I would just like to really flag this, and again say just because. The the you know a little child come with the mother and the mother has given a a, a self diagnosis. You don't necessarily have to accept that mm. and to to question it and dig a little bit deeper because you know I really do not believe. Actually, I personally do not believe that salicylate intolerance is a thing. Right. I think that it's masked by other things. I think that there are often uh, histamine intolerances that are masking the salicylate. And because they do the elimination combined, so they eliminate amines and salicylates at the same time, mm. then they, they feel that the salicylates are part of the issue. But generally speaking, it's more related to a dysbiotic picture and where there are profound shifts in microbiota and by removing um, even more sort of different kinds of prebiotic foods and and foods that are high in um, polyphenols, which feed beneficial bacteria, then they end up stuck in the cycle where uh, they have more and more, they're feeding more and more bacteria that produce uh, things like amines. And so they become more and more convinced that that you know the problem is actually the intolerance
0: whereas the, the problem is the gut in the first place yeah uh, you know what I, I actually i i've seen this or suspected this on a number of things where the new f- the new flavour of something comes in and mm. you know we do we 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 intervene in a certain way and think that the changes that we see are therefore due to that intervention but what mm. happens is or, or what the real issue is that we're changing an overall thing um that and so the changes are really due to that but we think it's due to one thing for instance um the french paradox i'm going to talk about mm. Mm. you know and they went high saturated fat but low heart disease so therefore high saturated fats good well hang on mm. when you look at the french diet they eat slowly without stress they eat a lot absolutely. more vegetables it's not just the saturated fat so there's all of these other things so it's much more attuned to the mediterranean style eating rather than this saturated fat that's the answer
2: absolutely and lifestyle and I mean, lifestyle much shorter week, working week, Uh, absolutely. I think stress is a huge, huge component, but we tend to latch on to these um, sort of these results and and then make decisions as a result. And so I think we've spoken before about, um, you know, how trendy it is now to have high saturated fat everything. Mm. And um, I, I, you know, I have experienced it. You know, firsthand personally, and also in in clinic, I experimented with this years ago, and it was disastrous, absolutely disastrous. So I think that a little bit of common sense in in our approach probably wouldn't hurt.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, You you mentioned encopresis before. I just wanted to point out for our listeners that so that's the soiling of of underwear past um, toilet training, correct?
2: It is, yeah. So it's involuntary soiling,
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, so I've got to ask about psychological issues here, you know, a new sibling or, or some other, even a sinister, um, you know, sexual interfering with the child or anything like that. Do you ever sort of have to, you know, be a little bit cautious in your questioning of the parents here to get get to the real issue? Uh,
2: yes, absolutely. And particularly because I'm not trained as a psychologist. Uh, so. I've I have never been confronted with something like this in the sense where I thought that there was something untoward just because we saw the results, you know, yeah. the crisis was resolved. Yeah. Uh however, yeah, I would say you would definitely as part of your um case taking, you would be asking sensitive questions as, you know, are there any potential stresses in the home that you think could be contributing to this? Um, tell me a little bit about the family situation. So those those kinds of things. And and certainly um psychology and nervous system health are really intertwined with Caprice's and often that is all that is that is required. But from my point of view, I tend to see the incaprice children who have done all the testing and nothing has worked. Right. So and and really I'm always surprised as to something as simple as a parasite test that has been missed by all the, you know, gastroenterologists, the children's hospitals, and no one has actually done a very simple parasite test, wow. and these children actually harbour a parasite. So they're spoiling <laughs> yeah. themselves for a reason. It's yeah. not really incorporated. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. have an infection. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I always find it always amazes me <laughs> when I when I see that.
0: Uh, it, uh, look, uh, you know, this is one of my beefs: is that the medical, I'm going to say, industry profession is taught common things happen commonly. The problem is that you tend to many practitioners and not just medical practitioners would tend to therefore always or, or you know for the vast majority of times look for the common thing rather than always suspecting that you know my my answer to that is common things do happen commonly but th- sinister things will kill you before the common things so so <laughs> my my issue is if i can't see it If I don't know what's going on inside that gut, I want some test to reassure me that I'm not doing a placative type treatment where something horrendous is going on um, that will affect that family and that child forevermore. That's where my sort of, call it paranoia, um, sort of steps in. And that's why I really like what you do, that you cover your bases before progressing. But then can I ask, with regards to treatment, when do you tend to revisit treatment, particularly with kids who can go off the boil mm-hmm. and come back on again quite, quite qu- mm. quickly, and then how do you tease apart a, let's call it a placebo response, let's call it a subjective, oh, they're listening to me, they're doing something, whereas before, nothing's nobody's listened to me, so I'm happy, there might be less stress, and so the child feels less mm-hmm. stress and gets better, versus... Mm. A parasitic type issue that's a, you know a, de- a demonstrator pathology that's getting objective response. How do you tease that apart?
2: Well, firstly, I agree with you. You need you need both, and uh, I've actually got uh, um, a little anecdote for you to um, illustrate my point. Yeah. Um I was re- recently uh, speaking to the mum of a little client, a six-year-old uh, uh, little girl who I've been seeing for. Um, recurring worms and, and constipation. And uh, I tend to follow up my clients on a weekly or you know every 10 days. So I send them an email to see how they're progressing, if they have any questions. And um, so I remember checking in with this lady, I think it was about three weeks into the treatment, and the mum was adamant that there was no change.
1: Yeah.
2: And uh, uh, so I, I took that on board and I thought, okay, well, we might have to revisit the treatment and I'll have to reassess. And then I thought, well, hang on she' she's six she's six and a half. she's actually nearly seven, so I thought let's actually ask the daughter so mm. i I emailed her back and I said, "Well, you actually asked her and it turns out in fact she had started um emptying a bowel much more regularly. she hadn't had uh, an itchy bottom you know for a couple of weeks. yeah, so I think it's important to to do both in terms of revisiting testing i Tends only to do that in terms of parasitic infections and when there have been gross nutritional deficiencies. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I base sort of my uh, my treatment review on on the clinical presentation and how the symptoms are are progressing. Yeah. As to whether you know how much of it is placebo, how much of it is actually biochemical, I don't know. And really, at the end of the day, I'm not really sure that I care that much because what I want to see is results. Yeah. Whichever way they come. And I think that's part part of the beauty of being a complementary practitioner that placebo effect probably plays a big big part because we counsel the clients um you know during the consultation, you know the little patient might be sitting on the floor uh listening to what's being said about them while they're doing some drawing. And so it is part of that holistic, you know we're here for you, we're listening. and and so, as you pointed out, it could be that their stress response just gets abated uh, by noticing that someone is paying attention. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, I think the the big thing there is longevity of results. you know, like I, I've been yeah. to I've been to medical practice, I've been to I've been to physios and you feel great after the physio mm. appointment. Because they're supporting, you know, the movement of the spine, things like that. Wow, that feels so good. Three hours later, (laughs) you know, (laughs) so and and yet I've, uh, conversely to that, I've had other patients and I'm going to Mm -hmm. speak from a personal point of view, my wife, who has visited an extremely (laughs) caring practitioner, physio, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. she is getting long-term results in between visits. So, So there's two sides of that quote unquote placebo mm. coin, you know. Yeah. Is it necessarily bad? <laughs> you know, if you yeah. want to sell a drug, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but if you want to get people better, I think the the big issue is longevity of results. Um
2: Yeah. And look I, I think that um I'm not sure how much uh an exclusive placebo effect would last in terms of longevity. Mm.
1: Um,
2: you know, particularly when we're looking at uh you know a dysbiotic picture. So we know that you know, that the longevity of the results will also come after the treatment has ended, the active treatment in terms of, you know, the the parents or, or, you know, or the client being able to sustain the dietary changes, the lifestyle changes, the mindset changes that we recommend Mm. as complementary practitioners. And so self-care is really high on my agenda. And I generally now only work with people on, you know, um, four to five months program because i have found that in order to cultivate that new mindset of self-care it really takes a bit of time and and working on uh educating them on actual information as opposed to finding information on blogs written by people who have no no clinical experience no qualification uh i i find that you know with with this kind of therapy you get really really great results that yeah. stick so i generally they don't come back to see me
0: yeah so prevention of reinfection um I know we've discussed this before in a previous podcast that I did with you on blasto, but with regards to that prevention of reinfection, you know, when you're looking at the environmental aspects, um, I remember somebody talking to me about Northern rivers, you know, blastocystis was rife throughout the Northern rivers because people commonly, not always, but more commonly than other areas relied on rainwater, thinking that it was a healthy option, yet it was unfiltered. (laughs) So I was like, eek! What? A, right yeah what do you That's, think of yeah. what, what sort of things do you go through here
2: that is definitely a big big flag i always ask people if they as part of my initial questionnaire do they drink tank water and if so what, what kind of filtration system they have uh traveling measures you know where when do they last travel abroad or you know are they active bushwalkers do they drink from uh you know from rivers uh So those kinds of questions are really important. But from a more urban point of view, also simple things such as, you know, is your child attending daycare? To me, straight away, you know, suspecting possible co-infections, you know, worms, um, that's really important. And and assessing also, not just from an infection point of view, but if they're at daycare, are they being fed the food by the daycare, you know? What's the food like there? Um, so those questions are, are also important, and and even in terms of personal hygiene, you know, when you're doing the physical examination, which I think I didn't answer your question earlier about the kind of examinations that I undertake. You know, I was I was going on about the, the medical history, but I certainly do do a physical examination, yes. and particularly for uh, digestive issues in children, where, as you correctly said, they cannot describe what's going on in their tummies. I think that. Um, doing an abdominal examination, especially concentrating on observation and palpation, is important yeah. because with palpation you will be able to sense and see the guarding. Yep. If there is an area that uh, that has some some inflammation or or, or infection or or something else, um, and then looking even at the fingernails, you know, are the fingernails nice and trim? Are they clean? Um, uh, also, looking at the tongue, that's a really, really big, big part of the, of the examination for me. So uh, going back to this, the, the environmental assessment, the other thing that's important that kind of falls a little bit outside of the environment, but who else also might be harboring an infection or parasite in the family? Right. Do you, do you test everyone else in the family? Do you know who the carriers are?
1: Right.
2: So those, those things are important because often there are reinfections, and uh and it's important to know that um it is very common for families to carry parasites yeah. and it doesn't necessarily mean that the parasite needs to be eradicated. That's not the aim for me of the of the treatment. Uh, but if the, if the child is more susceptible to actually developing digestive sy- symptoms as a result uh, and they've had severe diarrhea as a result of constipation, then knowing that there are other carriers in, in the family is really important.
1: Mm.
0: Uh, you know, this is one of the things I love about you, Alessandri, you, you you've gotten away from that kill-kill mentality. Quick, you know, hit it with a hammer sort of thing and you're saying, whoa, whoa back here. Let's look at why they reacted. Why have they got an issue where somebody else hasn't? Because, for instance, blasto is this sort of facultative. It's not an obligate pathogen. It's a facultative pathogen which will, yeah. you know, take advantage of a uh, of a poor terrain and say, I'll have I'll have a piece of that. Thanks. <laughs> I don't know why these pathogens are always English, but anyway. <laughs> a couple of things I have to broach with you though. You, you mentioned the six month sort of program, motivation very commonly tapers off how do you broach that motivation factor over that elongated period to make sure that they're on the straight and narrow make sure making sure that they're doing the good things you know cooking the good food feeding the good food to their children avoiding the bad stuff what do you do
2: um, i watch them like a hawk
1: <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs>
2: i uh i uh, i actually physically call them so if um so i you know i'll send out uh, an email weekly to yep. see where they're at yep. uh, of, of previous interventions. Have they uh, implemented the changes? If they say no and and it's you know no to a lot of the questions I'm answering, then I go, right, I'm, I'm calling in five minutes or let's organise a five-minute catch-up. And, and just to help them identify basically, you know, is there any self sabotaging going on? Or mm. is it really a time issue? Do they need a little bit of coaching in terms of time management and getting their, their life organized? Are there, is there any help I can help them bring in uh, in the home to, to give them that that um well wow. support? Well wow. uh, but I have to say, can I tell you something though, I actually screen I screen my clients before they come on board. Yeah, you said um, this before. <laughs> because i am not a psychologist, so if there is someone where I identify where there are um really you know severe mindset issues in terms of um you know I'm, I'm not worth it or i'm not going to be able to get better I've always been unwell, then I don't feel like that I'm best qualified to help them so I try to refer them to um you know to the g p to get a mental health care plan mm. in place first mm. and get them to overcome those psychological barriers and then once they're ready, great, we can fly and as long as there's commitment, that's fine. Um, So basically, yeah, it's, it's a matter of breaking down, chunking out the the steps and the aims and goals. So, you know, if someone's coming to you and with a standard Australian diet and they're eating, you know, white bread and junk food and everything is pre-prepared, they're, they're just eating a bit of iceberg lettuce once a week, you really cannot possibly expect them to be a hundred percent compliant no. if you put them onto a 100% whole food diet. So I tend to introduce things first. So are they not drinking water? Let's put in the water, okay? Let's bring in some extra veggie sticks a day. Let's have an apple a day. So all the things that they can add so they don't feel that they're giving up their lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And then bit by bit, bit by bit, we make the changes.
0: You know, I held you in high esteem before, Alessandra, but I got to say, I tip my hat to you because it's very rare that I will meet a practitioner that will say, you know what, you need somebody else's help first before you're, you know, you're going to have the success with my program. I'm not going to even touch you, Uh, uh, you know, and you're not rejecting them. You're saying there are other people who can better help you prepare for when you might be ready to undergo this program because it involves change. And I, I really applaud you for that. That's, that's very rare and very well done. Good on you.
2: Thank you. Mm. Thank you
0: very much. That means a lot coming from you. Thank you. No, I'm, My honour. I've got to say, I, I love this job. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. I just get to meet the best minds. It's, it's awesome. <laughs> I have to ask, though the bad question that we never like to ask what happens when things simply don't work and you are confounded. And I, I I'd like to sort of raise a thing here that was told me by Dr. David Jar. Hi, David. And he said, when things go bad, that's okay. I know enough, you know, I'm confident in my, in my, um, education to, to say, all right, let's change. When things go well, he said, that's great. I just get a bigger self esteem. He said, it's when things don't change. He said, when things don't change, I'm dead in the water. I got nothing. I got no signposts. He said, that's the most frustrating thing to me. What do you do to reassess? What what sort of things do you do to look at, maybe even find out if there's compliance issues and they might be not telling you the truth?
2: Absolutely, especially with children. Mm. Um, look, for me, I, I am, um, I'll come clean now, I am incredibly competitive. Um, <laughs> I... <laughs> You know, um, when when we go to naturopathic college and, and even you know subsequent years with continuing professional development, you're always told, don't take it personally. So I take it personally. I invest a lot of my time, um, you know, research into these cases. And um, when the, there is, you know, the other, luckily it doesn't happen all that often, but it does happen when there's people that are just don't budge at all. I do take it personally and I do not... I do not take over for an answer. So what I what I do is um, first of all, as you said, I check for compliance mm. always. Um, luckily, it's part of these programs that I run now. That that's kind of you know I, I assess that on a weekly basis. So I know generally they are they are compliant. However, um, sometimes they are non-compliant through no fault of their own, in the sense that they have perhaps misread my instructions or I didn't make it clear enough. Mm. So they might not be taking the correct dosage. That's the first thing. Um, Once I've assessed that, then I actually, um, I basically sit down of an evening and I take everything out. I reassess all the tests. i go back to the initial questionnaire and I get my mind map software out and I just basically reassess the whole case and put it through a fine comb and see whether I've missed any differential diagnosis at the beginning or... If there are some differential diagnoses that I haven't yet explored with testing, so sometimes when the case is really complex, you cannot test for every single possible option. Uh, So then that's another avenue. If then I find that that's not the case, um, and I'm still convinced that I was on the mark with the original diagnosis, then I review my treatment and particularly the dosage. Yeah. And this is something that uh, I think comes with experience. And in the early days. I never used to do. I used to kind of stick to dosage by what you know would say on the bottle if you like. And um and I think once you have that confidence sometimes just increasing the dosage or the frequency of of the dosage that might be all it takes. The other thing it could be that again something that comes with experience is that that perhaps they need a little bit longer on on this treatment. Right. Yeah. Um and and finally if that doesn't work then I've got my two other options, which is I actually pay for mentor for a mentor yeah so i I have um two or three mentors in Australia that I speak with on a on a regular basis uh, even with cases that it's not they're not budging at all but perhaps they're not moving as fast as I'd like and and the other thing is also to have good uh, GPS on board that you can actually call up and and say I could ask a few questions um what do you think of this so I think that generally speaking, it's rare that I find someone just I cannot help at all mm. um, after having done all these steps.
0: So my next question is regarding treatment. You've got several herbs which you've got to be more cautious with in kids, for instance, those containing thuyone. those herbs containing mm-hmm. thujone. Um, are there any treatments that you particularly avoid in children because of potential toxicity? not that I've seen any on the um, database of adverse events notification, D-A-E-N for the TGA, Mm. but are there certain herbs that you avoid? Are there certain herbs that you really like to use in kids that have really good effects?
2: Uh, Yes, yes and yes. Um, Again, it depends on what particular condition we are, you know, we're talking about. So uh, generally speaking, I find that, um, but herbs that I would certainly avoid in children would be things like coptis, for example, uh, yep. and, and herbs that are particularly non selective in terms of their antimicrobial actions. So I, I'm not a huge fan for gastrointestinal conditions in children of hydrastis. Um, and I tend, with children, I tend to work more in, in terms of introducing things rather than, than killing. So uh, I work a lot with prebiotics different types of, of prebiotics. Uh, I work with individual nutrients. So, you know, things like zinc, for example, or, you know, um low dose vitamin A. Uh, and and I will do that through functional foods as well or functional supplements like cod liver oil. Um herd-wise, I really like sort of fairly low dose uh in my treatments and I tend to uh concentrate on those herbs that actually have more selective actions in the in the gut, so mm. like punica, and and also anti-inflammatory actions, so like chamomile.
0: Okay, um, so with regards to functional foods, for instance, things like fructooligosaccharides or inulin, you you know. As an industry, it's just indolent. There you go. See you later. That's what it is. But there's different sized molecules. There's different types of these fibers. Do you find that different foods, for instance, work differently or that you choose different supplements because of a different um, molecule length?
2: Yes, absolutely. And look, I, I've had the great fortune of... of uh having um you know jason horlack at, at gold naturopathic, as my mentor now for mm-hmm. um best part of a year and a half mm-hmm. now so uh, my approach is is heavily influenced by his research and uh i and i have to say that the application of uh, uh, different foods and different prebiotic fibers in terms of modulating specific bacteria yep. works really, really well for me. And the way I do that is generally by, uh, doing a comprehensive stool analysis, uh, based on, um, you know, PCR technology. So you can really gauge, have, have a good idea as to what kind of mod- modulation you're looking for. And so generally speaking, I, I see a lot of, um, Bacteria that really thrive on protein and fat and not so much of of the bacteria that just really love, you know, love fiber, love colored protein, veg and, um, you know, prebiotic fibers, even in terms of foods, in terms of eating lentils and beans. Uh, And and that is right across the board. So nine times out of 10, that is the kind of dysbiotic picture I see. I think we just have um, way too much availability of meat. These days, and I'm not really convinced. Looking at this testing that I'm doing, that that's how we're supposed to be eating. So my selection of these these fibers is really based on based on this. So uh, what does the test tell us? What are, are the symptoms correlating this um, microbial picture that I'm that I'm looking at on this piece of paper? And then how do we modulate? And how do we select? You know, which fiber do we select for that? And the great thing about these fibers is that compliance with kids fabulous because they taste like sugar um so they can they can be eaten off the spoon they can be incorporated in juices smoothies um and it's a lot easier to to give them that than you know than, than herbs yeah. although I do use some some terrible tasting herbs above well, it yeah. um, not <laughs> that, for everybody <laughs> uh,
0: I'll, I'll get to the terrible tasting herbs in because that's a that's a definite trick that one but but um I was really interested I read a paper and forgive me if this is wrong but I I get the feeling it was either from Fred, I think it's Barkhead that you would say, pronounce his last name, Fred Barkhead, or Mm. Martin Blazer. But what it was looking at was the microbiota over the life, i.e. as we grow, and at different phases of growth, i.e. when you're sort of um, the sort of infants and the teenage years, Mm. these propionibacteria tended to be higher in amounts. So I wonder if it's sort of this, you know, we know about, um, you know, ma- the maternal microbiota will sort of um, tend towards the carbohydrate harvesting. And I wonder yeah. if there's a function in some of this um, modulation of the, the protein harvesting bacteria, there I say that word, um, I, over a lifestyle, you know, with regards to periods of growth, muscle growth in particular. You ever seen this or...?
2: I, I think that's a really interesting question. I know what you're talking about, and, I, and I'm, I think that i read about this. I think Martin Blazer actually talks about it in missing microbes. Um, yeah. uh, I, I haven't thought of it in, in that way, and it's certainly an interesting uh, point of view, perhaps because my population sample is a little bit skewed in the sense that I only ever see people who've got
1: symptoms.
2: Yeah. Uh, so for me, the correlation get rid of the is, symptoms, well, yeah. well, it's get rid of symptoms also. The correlation is just, uh, you know, it, it, I, I see this kind of despotic pictures, not just in, in infants or, or children who are in that sort of uh, anabolic state. Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure I'm not sure, and I, I don't think we've got the evidence yet as to what you know what that means. Yeah. I the way I interpreted it is more that in terms of the current lifestyle practices that we all have, we generally have a loss of diversity over the course of a lifetime, mm. and uh, if you like, it's survival of the fittest, and so the the fittest will be the ones that get fed um, the, the the foods that they thrive on 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 a more regular basis. Yeah, uh, and so perhaps that. You know, perhaps that's more of the of the case. I'm not
0: too sure. Can I ask you then? I guess you know. Sometimes I've heard practitioners say, "Oh, you know, there's there's too much, too many lactobacilli," and so therefore the initial reaction for that would be lactobacilli are therefore bad. And my concern is, well, hang on, shouldn't you be looking at why there's too many lactobacilli? Do you ever see this sort of reaction going on? Like...
2: I get it all the time. Um, there is. There's lactobacillus overgrowth and the streptococcus overgrowth, so let's take you know a course of antibiotics. I don't know where that came from. I really don't know. Um, my husband does a lot of work at Summary, um, South Australian Medical Health Research Institute, mm. and there's some really hot scientists there in terms of um, microbiome research. And sure. um, I, I've actually gotten to ask this question specifically because I used to get this all the time. And... Um, they their response was, you know, the same as mine. It's is, you know, we don't know where that comes from. It is not really accurate. Um, there is no such thing as lactobacillus overgrowth. And and you need to look at the kind of testing yeah. that yields those results. So I yeah. think again, just be be judicious as to who is saying that and how they are testing specifically uh, specifically for that. And when you think about it, you know, lactobacillus really does not make up a huge percentage no. of the bacterial population. No. So we kind e. of have this, this <laughs> that's right, this idea that there's like these huge amounts of bifido and lactobacillus and it's like, well there's so many more. Mm. Uh and, and these they, they do have they, they play a significant role in terms of uh health state, and we we've got the research for it. So I never I, you know, if I if I see that I go, No, don't worry about it. I'm 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 happy you've got a lot of lactobacillus. Let's leave it there. <laughs> yeah. And let's not worry let's, about it. Let's
0: not kill it, yeah. <laughs> let's not kill it. <laughs> Where can people learn what you learn? Do you teach do you mentor anybody else now? Do you have you written books?
2: Um,
0: and if not um, when? No.
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, my my book is uh, I've got the date now. It's coming out mid for but it is not a book that's related to this. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, so I, I don't think that that would be um that would be of use. I I would say I stopped mentoring in the last six months. Just I couldn't fit it in yeah. uh, into my schedule anymore. Um, but I would say mentoring is definitely great. So um, just try and find someone who is, you know, who's happy to do that. And just also keep going on to uh PubMed, Medline, you know, and keep reading the research and um experiment with these probiotic fibers because that that's the great thing about these is that there there are no side effects yeah. other than, you know, if someone's got um IBS and the fractures intolerance, perhaps things like FOS might not work very well for them. But yeah.
1: Yeah, that's right. um
2: yeah, but generally speaking that they're, they're they're pretty safe. They're foods. So you can't you can't really go wrong.
0: So last question: five favourite foods.
2: Oh, <laughs> uh, do these have to be healthy foods? <laughs> <Yeah.
0: laughs> no, they have to get an effect.
2: <laughs> okay, I'll say it. Sorry, talking about my you know I've got this going off on a tangent. Um, okay, my favourite food. That's a great question. Okay, favourite foods would be um, chickpeas. Because everybody loves them, oh yeah, and they're very well, uh, very well tolerated. Um, Artichokes—they're uh, a little bit of an unsung hero, and I really like them. And um, and the great thing about artichokes is that uh, they can be an easy addition. You know, you can even buy them in you know in glass jars. Mm. Um, so they, you know, they're, they're really great. Um, other foods that I love are coloured grains. That's a really great way ah. to increase, um, you know, the nutritional content and the polyphenol content of the food and how we feed the beneficial bacteria. So that's a, uh, a a neat trick that I learned from Jason Horlack. Coloured um, grains. Coloured grains. So, you know, generally speaking, we we tend to counsel our clients to eat whole grains. Yeah. And so just go the extra steps and say whole coloured grains. So, you know, I love tricolor quinoa.
1: Um, uh, right, yeah. Wide,
2: it's widely available. You can buy Australian-based quinoa as well. Um, ah, good. Rices are really well tolerated for most people with digestive issues. And so if you've got someone who's really not tolerating grains very well, but rice is okay, then rather than just give them brown rice, you can get them to rotate their red rice, black rice, wild rice. Um, they can be incorporated in breakfast. Um so there's probably quite a few foods in there, actually, that I've that I've mentioned.
1: Yeah. Um, well done. The
2: other thing that I I'll love, probably my last one, mm. would be, uh, again, a neat trick is um, to cook and cool potatoes. Great addition for kids' lunches. And um, you're actually changing the composition yes. of the starch. Yes. So that, that's really lovely. So you could do you a know, few veggie sticks with uh, some hummus and, and cold potatoes as a, as a lunch, a uh, microbiota-friendly lunch for kids.
0: Yeah. And that changes it into a resistant starch, which is going to feed, not specifically, but certainly um, going to help along your bifidobacteria or the bacteria in your lower bowel, yeah? That's right. Yeah. Alessandra, I could talk to you for hours. There's so much that we could cover and there's so many different tangents, but, you know, time permitting, I guess, we have to cut it here. But would you join us for FX Medicine at other times? Because I, I got to say, I just, I love the way that you think Outside of a box, and certainly outside of a commercial boxes that we're taught, um, you know, and that practitioners grab so eagerly onto, and you go that extra step. To me, it's for all for the patient, and I really, really applaud you for that. You, you, you really, um, you know, I doff my hat to you. It's very well done.
2: Thank you. I I would love that. I really enjoy this conversation. So,
1: absolutely,
0: anytime. Excellent. Thanks so much. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield Cook. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today on FX Medicine, please engage with us and let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in contact with us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au, or look for FX Medicine in your favourite social media platform. You can also rate and review us on iTunes, and we'd really like to thank those who have already rated us. It's through your continued support that enables us to bring you current, complex and relevant topics to enhance your
1: practice of natural medicine.